in a world where podcasts have become mundane, one soul brother with two left feet is doing his best to give you interviews straight, no chaser. Welcome to Reviews and Dud, where you can find interviews with some of your favorite entertainers. What's going on, world? Peace and blessings. Once again, it's Mr. Derek Dunn with Reviews and Done. I have the pleasure of speaking with Sean Riviera of 90s group As Jet. Come on now. You guys all remember As Jet? The four brothers in the video last night, they looked like a window screensaver looking back on it now. But outside of that video, <laughs> these brothers were immensely talented. Four lead singers, all with a different kind of swag. So I want to welcome to today's Reviews and Done interview, Mr. Sean Riviera. How you doing today, brother? I am doing well. Every day I wake up is a blessing. Yes, indeed. Well, first and foremost, I want to thank you for taking the time out to speak with me during this uh, COVID crisis that the world is going through right now. But I'm very excited to learn about the hazard history and learn about what you've been up to since the group. So up hey, first well. <laughs> is, was there a particular artist you listened to or conch that you, went, that you saw in your childhood that served as your inspiration for wanting to become a singer? Uh, actually, I didn't want to become a singer because I uh, saw a particular artist. I actually joined the gospel choir in my high school uh, so that I could get over uh, – reading in front of people, like getting over my uh, fear of crowds. So I, I actually got into it kind of by accident. You know, I wasn't one of those child prodigy kids. But if there was an artist that influenced me at an early age, uh, when I first heard the group Take Six, uh, I wanted to be in a group, like be a part of that kind of magical harmony, you know, uh, musically. I wanted to do something that made people feel like that. So I'll, I'll give Take Six credit for being one of my early uh musical influences, but it wasn't like I want to become a singer because of them. I just wanted to work in music. I knew somehow that I was supposed to do that. Cool, cool. And I'm sure growing up in um, Philly, music was a big part of your childhood, whether or not you wanted to um, be in the industry or not. I mean, Philly is just as iconic to me as Detroit is with um, Motown. And truth be told, um, oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Yeah, truth be told, I don't think Philly gets enough credit from the masses for everything they were doing with um, music. I mean, from Gamble and Huff to Horse Boys to Men and The Roots and Jazzy Jeff. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Hey, Patty LaBelle yeah. and Teddy Pendergrass yeah. and Frankie Beverly and Maze. I mean, there's so many great. Uh, artists from Philly and so many generations. Uh, it was definitely an ever-present influence. Um, so when I was in high school and I did decide that I wanted to be in music, uh, that was the thing to do was you go out to the street corner and, and sing with the groups and they used to battle and there'd be like talent competitions and local, I mean, hundreds of groups. Like I'm fortunate enough to come up in that Philly era uh, to know and watch Boys to Men before they got their record deal and all the other great uh, artists like Joe Scott, you know, um, 
Amir Thompson, you, a lot of people don't know, uh, Questlove went to school uh, with Mark Nelson at Kappa uh, here in Philly, the Creative and Performing Arts High School. So we, we have a connection to him. Uh, you know, the Philly scene is, is very uh, tight-knit. Cool, cool. Initially, the group as it was a duo with yourself and Dion Allen. How did the rest of the group form with the other members? All right. So uh, me and Dion were both in different groups, uh, and we were trying to put together like a super group. You know, we, we used to talk about, man, if we can get the lead singer from that group and, the, you know, the bass singer from this group, it wasn't like we were trying to steal uh, other group's members. It was just we, we knew that the kind of group that we wanted to be uh, compared to the other groups was to be uh, versatile and be able to do everything. Like, you know how uh, New Edition was a group uh, that people knew everybody's name in the group. The individuals all contributed in some kind of way. You know, everybody knew yeah, Ronnie, yeah. Bobby, Ricky, and Mike, you know. So we, we wanted to do something like that, but not sound like them, you know, and not sound like Boys to Men. The, the industry pitted us against them, but we actually uh, loved them, uh, you know, like brothers. So it was a great time to be alive and come up in that Philly scene. Like so a lot of bands. Um, I know. He's like, I'm sorry, one more, one more. <laughs> it's, uh, this no, I'm, I'm here like, it's, it's just there was something that you don't see in other cities, right? Like uh, maybe New York has a scene, and of course uh, L.A. and people tend to flock there. But Philly has like this thing where you can sit um, at a club, and there'll be a live band, and they know everybody's material, and you could be a complete stranger, hop up on an open mic, and tell them to give you, you know, uh, I don't know anything on the radio, and they'll just start playing it. And you, you know what I mean? Like they don't do that no more. Now we're going to be uh, doing social distancing videos. <laughs> I'm just messing with you, man. All right. Oh, no, I'm no, sorry. I'm, well, I, don't, I don't mean to be long-winded. I know. I know we oh, should no. do the lightning round because it's like 25 questions. Oh no! Like I said, man. Um, um, I give artists carte blanche to speak um freely, and I interviewed um Ryan Toby on um Monday, Monday, Monday of oh, okay of last week, and Ryan and I chopped it up for like two hours. Because you know, because there's so much that um, there's so much that he had to say, and you know, he's just a, I mean, from a writing standpoint, you know, that young brother's an icon. Because you know, he's written for oh, yeah. everybody, yeah, and just you know, he has a story to tell. And then, um, you know, for me, like I tell every artist that I that I speak with, hearing you all talk about music and how you got started and who you knew and who you ran into, you know, before you got signed. To me, that stuff is all golden. I mean, to be honest, like I tell everybody, for me, this to me is the equivalent for sports fanatics watching the Jordan documentary. Because, you know, I'm not in the oh, man. But hearing, hearing, hearing this stuff from you all is just like, it's a blessing and I'm just blessed that I'm able to conduct these interviews and learn more and more stuff that, you know, you can't find on Wikipedia or, you know, you can't find in the books, and for you to say, you know, something that you had to experience at that time is just, you know, very, very interesting to me. So when did Mark come into the group, Mark Nelson? All right. So uh, fast forward from me and Dion in 1989, fast forward to 1995. Now, we've been together for six years as a group called As Yet Untitled. Uh, 
you know, we were locally known and we performed regionally, you know, from New York to D.C., like just, you know, uh, went uh, just in the tri-state area and all that other good stuff. People knew who we were because we had done that many shows over six years. But Voice of Men had gotten their deal already, and we met, we had met Mark uh, when he was a solo artist on Capitol, and we weren't even trying to be in a group with him or have him be in our group or anything like that. He was a solo artist, but we got along, and he sang well. So uh, after we got the record deal in 95, like we, we actually, you know, we, we sent them demo, and that's a whole other story. But once uh, LaFace uh, was the one who, you know, believed in us and put us on, so shout-out to LaFace. Um, once that happened, uh, we started working on a project, and, you know, for one reason or another, we, we had to rotate some members uh, and we needed a replacement for a tenor. And we thought, hey, Mark's from our hometown. He's got the, you know, the, we know he's got pipes and he's really talented. He's also got the voice to men connection, which uh, that's is, which is something, you know, people will talk about us. And that was it. Uh, once we came, he auditioned, he sang one song, and we already knew he was the dude right then and there, you know. So shout out to Mark Nelson. Really talented dude. And- Folks, a bit of trivia. Originally, Boyz II Men was a five-man group. If you remember in the new edition Mark story, <laughs> with their boys, with, with the little Boyz II Men cameo, there's five members. Mark Nelson was that fifth member, and he actually left the group either before they got signed or right when they got signed and did a solo album in 91 where he covered Marvin Gaye's I Want You. So just some useless knowledge for Wow, that's that is correct. Out there. Yeah. <laughs> Who'd have known yeah, when so we had him in 91 that he'd be in the yeah, you did your homework. I don't shoot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what it is is, is um, this a children's program? I, I don't want to swear on 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 air if it's like a children's program. Oh no, no. Program. Like I, I said, man, you got um, you got carte blanche. So speak freely. <laughs> speak freely. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I got bedtime stories, but some of them ain't for kids. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, and I mean, I think with um with Mark, um, I didn't know that he did a solo album in '91 until I got older, and then you know the internet you know, became more prominent. You know, you can go back and figure out folks, you know, did a solo album back in the day. And, uh, you know, when he dropped um, the second one, Chocolate Mood, um, I was just online one day typing in, you know, Mark Nelson trying to buy the CD. Someone saw my first CD, and the first one popped up before the second one did. I'm like, hold on, that's Mark Nelson from Magnet and dude doing Chocolate Mood? He had an album in 91. You know, I was all 10 years old. In 91, so it didn't really register. Oh, man. Look, I got some trivia on. for you. Uh, a piece of trivia is that Mark, Mark's mother uh, was actually a, a, a famous singer named Phyllis Nelson that had a disco hit, like a charting disco hit uh, called I Like You. I don't know if you ever heard that song. I like you. I like you a lot. I'm not doing it in the justice, but you know what I'm saying. Like, it's like, it's catchy. Yeah. It was the John. And she was like a legend in the disco scene. So Mark actually comes from a long line, you know, I don't know about his grandparents, but everybody in his family got talent. So um, I didn't come on here to brag about Mark, but since you brought him oh, up, no, no. And, you know, I wish him the best, you know. It's just a yeah, good no, thing. Mark, Mark's an extremely, extremely, extremely talented um brother who, who, I mean, he's one of those unsung who properly never got his um, just due. I mean, without going into the room with details, you know, he never really got his um, just yeah, due as a, you know. as, as a singer for what he can do vocally. So how did you all end up? Yeah, he's really with creative with that pen. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. How did you all end up looking up with Babyface? Oh, man. Um, 
we hooked up with Babyface uh, after six years of honing our craft. We were fortunate enough that a friend named Mark Coleman uh, took our music to uh, the Edmonds family, which is uh, Babyface's wife's uh, family. Uh, shout out to Michael McQuarrie and Tracy Edmonds, and uh, rest in peace, Jacqueline McQuarrie. Uh, they uh, heard our demo and, you know, took the leap of faith to have us uh, meet Babyface, and then we sang for him live. Uh, we had, like, uh, what's the name of that, that place? The Wynnum Franklin Plaza is a hotel that we basically uh, auditioned, like, on the spot, and he made us open for him. He said, hey, can you open for me tonight? And we're like, wait, you mean, like, get on stage with After 7 and Elder Barge? Wow. It was mind-blowing. Like, you know, everything changed. We thought our lives would never be the same, and we were right. Some some special shout out to Babyface, um, Kenneth Edmonds and family. Good people, really good people. So let's go back in time a little bit. April thirtieth, nineteen ninety six. You all released your first album, led by the first single, the still classic, Last Night. Did you have any idea the song would become so iconic? You know. Uh, Babyface had given us the song as a demo that with just the keyboards and his vocals on it and a, a cassette recording uh, a year and a half before the rest of the world heard it. And even in that raw demo form, we knew we were sitting on that a gold mine. Like we, we knew this song was, was going places because it, it's well written. Uh, you know, shout out to uh, Keith Andes, uh, who also uh, co wrote that with Babyface. Uh, you know, talk about underrated uh, writers, musicians, producers. Uh, there's little tidbits of information when people read the liner notes you know you find out that there's it takes a team you know to make the dream work um, and Babyface is very talented he's he's obviously one of the most talented writers in the world uh, bar none uh, living or dead so uh, we we sought him out to work with us and it actually you know came true so we're one of the lucky ones but there's so many um, so many talented groups that and during our era that didn't get the right shine. So um, at, at that era was something that can never be repeated. You know, I, I know I went way off the tangent there, but it's, it's just... Uh, no, 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 it's, it's, it's all love, man. And, and I, totally, um, I totally agree with you on, um, on that, that era from, say, well, if you want to be technical, really just 80s, 80s to the 80s to about 2000, but like 90s R&B was just, it was something special about 90s R&B. And looking back on it, you know, I was growing up as a teen during that time. It's like every single release that came out from a group was always consistent. You know, even, even if you only had one album as a group, you know, for whoever, you know, for whatever reason, you still bought your A game. I can remember it was like, you know, yeah, Boys to Men was pretty much, they kind of set the standard, but I mean, you had other groups like Portrait and Shy and Intro and you guys that could yeah. compete with them vocally and it could hold their own, but it was just so much competition at the time. Unfortunately, a lot of groups got lost, you know, in the, in the shuffle, but I mean, yeah, that was a, that was a great time to be alive. And as a, as a music fan, it kind of saddens me sometimes that we'll never probably have that again the way that it was, you know, back in the 90s for R&B to where you could easily, um, 
throw the album on from start to finish and just let it ride out. <laughs> you know, it was just a great time to listen to the radio with your parents, you know, from my age bracket, and you all like the same same music. All right, so right. let's talk about that. Right. Let's talk about that last night video. So be honest, brother. <laughs> what, what, are your, what, what are your honest thoughts on the concept that you guys came up with for that video? Oh, it, uh, I, I love how you assume that we came up with it, right? Because obviously no uh, no video director uh, worth his salt would have ever directed that, right? But I'm going to – Well, do you guys have a concept in mind? No, I'm going to blow your mind. The, the person who directed this video is one of the most sought-after and popular video directors uh, for music videos. His name is Billy Woodruff. You can look up his credits. The boy is oh, – yeah, Billy Woodruff. You have no idea – Billy Woodruff. He did a lot of TLC stuff. I mean, he's done like everybody from you know Missy Elliott on down. Like he's one of those legends. I'm not even doing him justice, but basically he he did stuff with LaFace at that time, and we were straight out of the hood. So it it was the first time we saw ourselves on a camera that wasn't like you know a Super 8 if we were lucky or a TV or a news camera or a security camera. We we were like, oh my goodness, we look like stars. It never occurred to us that they would be laughing at us 25 years later for using the green screen from, you know, Six Flags Great Adventure or whatever. People think we went to a booth <laughs> at, at, at a carnival to make that video. But you got to think, you know, back then uh, we spent 12 hours on one of those rotating uh, floors against a green screen, doing the choreography, the wardrobe changes, the lighting, the, the makeup. You know, it was a to-do. That, that thing, that video was expensive. It was so expensive that it took two labels to pay for it. Def Jam paid for half the video cost. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you laugh now, but <laughs> that was something special. <laughs> that, 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 <laughs> I mean, we didn't have the concept. To, to answer your question, it wasn't like we went to them and said, can you make us look like complete idiots uh, 25 years from now? because uh, then they would have succeeded. What happened was they said, here's your shoot is going to be on this, these days. Uh, we're going to go and pick out some stuff for you, take your sizes, and you'll show up. We, we rehearsed with the choreographer, and we're doing laps, and once we were ready, they, they shot it in different segments. Oh, man, it took about 16 hours to make that homemade-looking video. <laughs> oh, man, okay, so I'd do it all over again. From an artist standpoint, then, from, 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 from an artist standpoint, what would you have done ideally for that video for the concept? Because, I mean, it, looking back, you know, it, it does seem dated, but with the whole the shifting around and the actual, I mean, the, the actual concept of the video, it, it fits the song looking back on it and, you know, looking at it from a cinematic standpoint with the, the, the um, weather change and the sky and all that. I mean, it fits the concept of the song. It's just that I think that the issue now looking back on it, you know, as an adult is like the execution wasn't as, I guess, tight as it could have been. So if you had Carl hey, Blanche, uh, you're right. video. The, the, the song, you know what, I got the answer to that, right? Or an answer, because you have to ask the other guys their opinion. But uh, honestly, if the song, which was number one, deserved a video that would go number one in that time as a video, like, you know, remember when I used to have the box, uh, MTV, yep. the box, uh, and uh, VH1 used to play music videos. Like we were at the era where people actually, um, you know, it, they enjoyed the cinematic side of things. Uh, I, I would have loved to do something that was like, you know, more 
cinematic, like j- drama or film noir, mixed like a little bit of, you know, s- what they call a seductive sort of imagery. Because, you know, a bunch of dudes, they're doing dances in white suits against floating mountains, you know, yeah, yeah. But I, I actually really enjoyed it, though. I, I know it sounds crazy, but I was naive enough to think that was a cool video when it came out. <laughs> I still love it, you know, but yeah, if what I would have done differently, I would have hired, you know, actors or something like me, you know, involved other people, show some scenarios of really hot people, uh, you know, wearing flowing silk with, you know, barely showing nipples. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Like acting out and every part. I would have had a bottle of wine and drank it. And correct me if I'm wrong, you guys were already gaining um, steam before the next sound, right? That's why Def Jam paid for the video because... The song was the song was on your debut and it was on the Nutty Professor soundtrack and I, there that video had two versions. One version had clips from the Nutty Professor and one version was just you guys singing straight through. So you guys were already um, gaining steam and gaining variety before the Nutty Professor came out in June. Of oh, so you saw the you saw the video that had the movie clips in it? Okay, yeah, you are a yep. diehard fan because I can't even find that one online anymore. Yeah, I remember seeing that one when I was uh, in Texas for that summer. Nice. There, there, there was like one clip when um, they showed the scene where I think Peter, you and Mark singing one of the parts of the song, and they showed Jada and looking at all the flowers that Buddy Love the to where yep. to apologize. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it was it was in the movie, and that was an honor. That if you watch the movie, there is a scene like where you can hear the music playing in the background. And, man, I remember screaming out loud. The first time I heard last night on the radio, like when it, we we were just chilling, the group were chilling, and it was like that scene, you know, from the five heartbeats where they, we're stepping, we're like half asleep and we're hearing the song on the radio, and it's just like, wait, that's us. That's us. Oh, turn it up. Oh, man, that, that exhilarating feeling of, of hearing something that you spent so many uh, – Hard years working toward uh, become a part of the fabric of society was, you know, it's an incredible thing. Incredible thing. All right, so you guys are successful. It's '96. Around that time, when you guys were actually when you guys were in your prime. Who was the first major artist you can remember touring with? Hmm. So it depends on what you mean by major, because we actually did a lot of shows before we got signed. With artists like Tony Terry, uh, Father MC, uh, even Jazz and Jeff at one point was interested in signing us. Like we were doing like little shows uh, for people that were known of. But then, at, before we got signed, I think I mentioned earlier. But uh, in order to get our record deal, they did a trial by fire show where LaFace, uh, we, you know, we had no contract with them, but they were interested, and we wound up singing uh, two songs a cappella on stage with uh, After Seven, Elder Barge, and Babyface. So, you know, that, that was probably the, the start. But we did go, we went on tour with so many great artists. But the first one, um, I said, like, I didn't want to insult Tony Terry by leaving him out. But I think Tony Terry was probably the first artist that had, you know, uh, When I'm With You, uh, Everlasting Love. You know, he had hits out. Uh, and he let us open for him uh, twice, once in Philly and once in Jersey, just as amateurs. You know, so I, shout out to Tony Terry. He's still out there doing it. Um, but then uh, with Babyface and After 7 and Elder Barge, it was a charity concert, you know, 
by the river. That was on another level. We were on a big screen, you know, uh, with a teleprompter and the wireless mics. It was like, oh, this is awesome, banquet style, you know what I mean? Like for, for the stuff shirts and the, the donors and the board, uh, board members. <laughs> so that was fun. Uh, first artist that we went on tour with was uh, 112. Uh, maybe, you know, who else is on there? Uh, well, you know how they had powerhouse concerts? They used to do, like, uh, Bug Bites and Super Fast. Um, yeah. And Bad Boy I used to have their own tour. So I back to school jam. Yes, yes. So we would do all these one-offs uh, and promotionals, too. Uh, so it wasn't like a tour where, like, all right, only you got the same set of artists for the whole tour, you know, different legs to bring different people on. We'd be brought in for only certain legs of the tour, and then we went overseas and toured. And there were a lot of good artists, um, you know, like that we kicked it with back in the day, like, you know, D'Angelo, man. He was cool. You know, he's still cool, but he was even cool back then before he was the D'Angelo we know him to be. Um, and Eric Benet, uh What's my man's name? Uh, Kenny Lattimore and Shante Moore and all them. And, of course, Tony Braxton, TLC, uh, Usher. We, you know, we used to kick it in Atlanta with uh, Goody Mob and Pink, who's also – Pink is actually from uh, my neck of the woods, the Philadelphia area uh, as well. So a lot of people don't know that, but, you know, they say she's, she's from Upper Darby, but it's still part of the Philadelphia County. You know what I'm saying? I ain't going back to yeah, was that? So that surprised me that um, cause in '96, that was the same around that same summer when Tony dropped uh, the Secrets album. I'm surprised mm. you guys didn't do like a do like a joint the face tour opening for Tony. Well, that's you know what? You know, when, at that time, we we wound up do we did go on tour with John D. That's the first artist that the label put us with. You know what I'm saying? That the label was like, okay, why are you going to get your feet wet with John B? And, you know, we hit it off right away. And it was like, we got to learn all his songs, like Pretty Girl. You know, he, he had a, like a, this whole uh, bona fide album. And, classic. You know, it was, yeah, man, classic album. So he, he was uh, doing stuff with Flow Tree, uh, you know, and before we wound up being label mates with them after we left the face, fast forward. But, um, we Babyface was writing for when we were signed. He was also working on um, "Waiting to Exhale," uh, with, you know, Whitney and all those people, and Prince of Egypt, and uh, Soul Food, and Tony Braxton's solo album. So we're lucky we even got songs from him. That's why it took like two years, you know, from you know to come out. Like the end of '96, we, we had the songs recorded from you know late '94, '95. Uh, it was a good thing because it gave us time to kind of, you know, mature and work some kinks out as as people. So I'm, I'm not uh, regretful that it didn't come out sooner. But, it, you know, I'm impressed that Kenneth Edmonds was capable of doing so many quality, timeless projects concurrently. He is a phenomenal writer. Oh, yeah. If I didn't mention that before. I'm like, he's prolific. No, no. That's not what I was looking for. I mean, speaking on, um, you know, speaking on face. You know, when they had the um, battle when he went against Teddy, you know, he didn't even scratch the surface of, of the stuff that he could have played. And, you know, I always tell people, like, you have no idea, like, how much stuff Face has written and who, who he's written for. I mean, that, that dude's pen is just, it's crazy. You're talking about somebody sending the game 78. 
<laughs> like just writing hit <laughs> after hit after hit, and he, even like his album tracks are quality. I mean, just who else can say who else can say they wrote for Barbara Streisand and did a song with Outkast? Like that's how crazy right. that dude, you know, that, that dude's pen is. Okay. Hey, so just speaking of, uh, did you know that he did a song with Jay Z called "My Sunshine"? Back in the day, yes, Jay Z rapped over. I was like, "What? Did he say some Jay Z?" And that was back in the day when he was more like, you know, his style was totally different. <laughs> yeah, nineties Jay Z. Jay Z was was totally different. Yeah, man. So I don't know uh, if, if there's even enough um, time to list all of his great material in one show. You're right. You're right. No, I mean you can. It's like it's, it's songs from. Amazing, you know, and you mentioned being an album credit reader earlier. Like, you know, that was one of my things when I was younger was I would always open up the CD, read the booklet, and see if, you know, Face wrote a song. It, it was always going to be either Face, Jimmy Jam, and Terry Lewis, and before the um, controversy, R. Kelly. Like, those would be the three people that I would go right. to when I was 15, 16 to see if they wrote a song for a particular artist. And, you know, as, as right. you get more in depth of music, you know, you look now like a you look for names like Tim and Bob, um, the underdogs. Yeah, we work with uh, them too, Tim and Bob and the underdogs. That's the, the crazy part about that that time of uh, that time with yet. There was a window. People say, whatever happened to you guys, right? There's a window um, that, you know, you have to capitalize on your success. So we were in the studio. Like, we went on, on the road overseas. We spent a good, you know, year and some change chasing every check. Uh, that they offer you because you never know when it's going to end. Then uh, when it came time to do the second album, we did get to work with uh, Harvey and Mason, uh, the underdogs, uh, uh, Mike City, you know, like uh, Brian Alexander Morgan. Shout out to Brian Alexander Morgan. Um, let's see, uh, G1, uh, you know, can't still work with uh, DJ Quick and then like, and Method Man and Red Man, like, you never associate that with As Yet, but we did so many dope songs that never came out, man. Oh, man. If I had the rights uh, to put them out, I would, but it's the same for every song that. the public hears. Yeah, man. Some good stuff. Good, good right, stuff so out there. You mentioned, you mentioned John B. earlier. One yeah. of my favorite songs from the, from the debut was Secrets that John B. actually wrote, and John B. is another one that I always speak on. People's like, yo, you guys have no idea how talented that dude really is. You know, he's more I than just the room. Uh, yeah, man. Uh, I sat in the room with John B. Uh, for weeks at a time or at different times, uh, co-writing with him. Uh, I did. I had the pleasure of watching him play every instrument in the room from start to finish. He comes from a musical family. He, he, you know, he sued the Spice Girls and won. I mean, he's talented on so many levels. His studio burnt down and he recovered from it. He's going through uh, so many changes. So that first album, right, I mean, the first there was a new, I mean, I'm sorry, there's a version of Secrets. There is a version of Secrets on the As Yet album that you've heard that is actually the remix. That one was, it was remixed by Bryce uh, Wilson from Groove Theory. The original version, oh my goodness, John B., when he brought the song to us, he had produced it himself, and it had a whole other vibe. I wish I had a copy of it. And shout out to John. Uh, you know, I wrote, uh, I co-wrote Pleasures You Like, uh, which is the title track for uh, his Pleasures You Like album. Uh, so I had a really uh, album. good connection with John. Yeah, I used to kick with him in Pasadena. He let me drive his uh, little whips around. He had some you know, dope cars. He's like, hey, you want to drive? And I was like, sure. I got no license. And then he said, shout out to John B. 
<laughs> cool, dude. Yeah, John. John's a um, John's a beast. I I can remember. Um, you know, I've I've, I've been a John fan since '95, but I took my wife to see him um live a few years back, and now now she's a super fan. But I took her to see him live a few years back, and she had no idea. Like you know, he could be down like that. I'm like, yeah, like John Man. just naturally, na- he just yeah. naturally talented. I mean, his, his catalog <laughs> speaks for days. And I think John, John's issue, his only issue was, I think people focused too much on him having that breakout hit with Are You Slow Down and They Don't Know. And, but, like, his albums were actually all quality albums. Once again, you know, start to finish, you can just throw, yeah, throw it man. on. And he just, you know, he he was killing the game, you know, in the nineties. I feel like he had, he was kind of a predecessor to, um, well, a predecessor and a contemporary of a lot of the great neo soul artists. You know what I mean? Like, well, I remember when uh, when Music Soul Child first came out, I thought it was a John B song because I'd watched John B when he had this little band called Jack Herrera, and it was a bad band. Yep. And I mean, like, and he would play his Fender Rhodes uh, or his Whirlister, uh and sing, and it, he had that swag to his music, kind of my man like D'Angelo, you know what I mean? Like people, uh, a lot of people didn't know he had that going on because when he was introduced to the public, uh, John B. Uh, was, did Someone You Love, a duet with Babyface, and he, uh, the talented person that John is, uh, was able to blend with Babyface to the point where some parts people didn't know who sang what until they saw the video. You know, so it's like he started out one way and then uh, reinvented himself, uh, but he was that all along. He, he un, I guess you can say he reconstructed uh, himself into who he always was. So he's still out there touring and everything, man. I love John. So shout out to John B. That's John B. Pacific. I still love that song. Was there a particular song that you would like to see released as a single from the first album? Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, we were hoping to have a third single, and it was a song written by Brian McKnight uh, called Arrow Through My Heart. Uh, and some of the radio stations uh, in the tri-state area uh, had picked it up. Some program directors pointed it out like, this is your, you know, this is the one. Um, however, uh, as you know, there was a period of time with the face uh, going through transition and turmoil with the lawsuits and whatnot, and uh, I had nothing to do with any of those things, but I will say that um, it was uh, not meant to be for whatever reason. It was not to be uh, that we never got to put out a third single. But if it was, it would be um, definitely Arrow Through My Heart. I love that arrangement. Shout out to Brian McKnight. Uh, when Brian McKnight brought us the song, he sang all the parts, every last harmony. And we replaced the parts. Uh, he taught it to us on the keyboard. You know, and he said that we were the first group uh, – that he ever recorded with the only group other than take six that he didn't have to uh, layer his own backgrounds underneath. So it's, it's, he's used to stacking his voice, you know, like when he did uh, the songs for boys to men. And it was kind of an honor because I'm like, wow, you did a whole album of boys to men, but I liked his voice with theirs. I think that they should have, if they ever had five members, you know, if boys to men had Brian McKnight as their fifth member, man, can you imagine that battle as yet, uh, as yet, Versus boys to men plus Brian. Oh man, we would, you know. <laughs> I am gonna say. I am gonna say. <laughs> so a shout out to uh, Brian and boys to men. Uh, I know I'm going off on a tangent, but you, you seem like a historian of music. Did you know that boys to men and as yet have one duet together on a Babyface album called "I'll Lay You Down"? It is a masterpiece. 
when I say it's a masterpiece, you got Kenny Terry singing bass uh, and Mark Nelson singing tenor, along with Sean Stockman and Wanye, and they made their own little super group with Babyface for just that song. It's freaking awesome. Got to hear it. Oh, cool. So yeah, man. Let's do first time a little bit more. You know, so we got to talk about the um, cover of Chicago's "Hard to Say I'm Sorry," which was a huge, huge song for you all. Thank um, you very much. Didn't our, hard, hard to say I'm sorry actually did better than last night. Right? Hard to say I'm sorry crossed over. You are, you, you are correct. Easier than that. Yeah, and the it, video it was the song that took us yeah, yeah. So whose idea? Who, whose idea was it? Whose idea was it for you guys to cover "Hard to Say I'm Sorry"? It was actually my idea to do the arrangement. Um, the label didn't come to us or anything like that. It was a situation where um, we we were pretty much, I'd say about two-thirds of the record. We already had the direction. We had, you know, uh, last night was done being recorded. Uh, we I think we'd done at least four or five songs because we did them in groups. And then um, we were taking a break for Christmas. I'll never forget. Uh, everyone was kind of on hiatus for the holidays. And, you know, I just ended off a bad relationship, and I was kind of alone. And my, my, it was my first Christmas away from home, uh, from Philly, and I was living in L.A. So I, I had this little Tascam Porter studio. It was like, shout out to Tascam Porter studio. It was a little cassette four-track. And, you know, I figured out a way to get a fifth track uh, by singing live as I was making a bounce on a double cassette. And I put together this little acapella arrangement and I got a phone call from Babyface's uh, mother-in-law who uh, she was surprised to find me home alone on the holidays and said, why don't you come with me? We're going over to Kenny's uh, in Lake Tahoe. I'm like, Kenny who? She says, Kenny, Babyface Edmonds. I said, uh, does he know I'm coming? Are you just, just going to invite me to somebody else's house? That's, you know. Uh, <laughs> so I took the, I, I took the demo, and uh, you know, after we went skiing and like we're out in the middle of the lake just chilling, and we came back and it was, it was I'll never forget John B was there and uh, Donnie Simpson, uh, Daryl Simmons. Uh, it was just a who's who of different uh, producers and artists coming back and forth, staying at this big estate, huge estate, uh, out in Lake Tahoe. Uh, I played the little cassette demo, you know, and I said, hey, you know, what do you think of this? It got really quiet. He listened to the demo, and he says, hey, well, Kenny Bayface Edmonds looks at me and says, I like it. We're going to – let's record this one when we get back. And I'm like, what? Right? So uh, I couldn't believe it. I had to, like, walk out of the room and use the bathroom, just, you know. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Right? So then um, we came back. After the holiday, we learned the arrangement uh, before we showed up at the studio and dropped the whole, all the backgrounds in four hours. And then Face came back and, he, you know, he put a little magic to the beat snap, if you will. And then he played the arrangement for David Foster over the phone of just our vocals uh, and the beat and the snap. And then David Foster says, you know what? Uh, I want to be a part of this. And let me call Peter Sotera, who co-wrote the song, and see if he wants to be, you know, do a cameo. And we wound up shooting a music video with the legendary Peter Cetera and having uh, the legendary David Foster play uh, piano on the remix, which was nominated for a Grammy for Best R&B Vocal Group or Duo in 1998. Yeah, hard to say I'm sorry. It was, um, <laughs> that was a huge song, you know, because it, it had that 
that pop sound. But I mean, even though it was an R and B record, you know, it was poppy enough to where you know you 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 would hear it on, you know, pop radio, as opposed to some of the other songs on the album that you know pop wouldn't embrace, which is sad. And then you guys worked with uh, Chicago again, right, on You're, You're the Inspiration, on David Foster's oh, album? Oh, yeah. It was actually on Peter Cetera's album. Um, uh, you know, David Foster may have included it on his album, too, because he does repackage his hits. But uh, I remember Peter specifically uh, wanting to return the favor. He's like, you, you made uh, Hard to Say I'm Sorry uh, the most successful Chicago remake to date. And we're, so uh, I'm working on this You're the Inspiration. You guys want to come down? Uh, recorded. He was so cool, man. Like we, you know, we and then we shot the video in Malibu on the beach. You know, it was, he was really nice. I mean, his wife and you know his family. Everybody was just great people. Great people. Peter Cetera. But the funny thing is, a lot of the new generation doesn't know who Peter Cetera is. So they used to say, huh, "Who's the old white guy in the middle of the video? What's he doing there?" I'm like, "It's his song." These youngsters today. So the group yeah, is really doing yeah. well. The group's doing well. It's 1997. Lead singer Mark Nelson leaves. Do you mind speaking on why Mark left and was replaced with Tony Grant? Uh, first of all, uh, I, I preface this by saying this is my perspective on it. I can't speak for Mark Nelson. However, Mark Nelson did not leave the group. He was uh, asked to leave. Uh, we tried our best, but we had... Uh, what they call irreconcilable differences. Um, yeah. But he, did, he didn't resign uh, in protest or anything like, you know, was, there was no uh, fist fight. Uh, and, you know, this, that was like 25 years ago. So I don't, I don't want to, you know, dig up old wounds, but I'll just say oh, that, yeah, um, sure. yeah, it wasn't, we, we weren't uh, able to continue with him in the group. So, and the thing is, he, uh, I'm, I'm guess I'm gonna I'm gonna spill some tea, and just uh, the, the, a lot of the uh, okay, artists don't realize that music is a business. So sometimes you have to make decisions that hurt your business to protect your integrity in the long run. <laughs> you know, it's not easy. People think, oh, well, why can't you guys just work it out for the greater good? Because the public and uh, the audience, they don't care about your drama. They just want to hear good music and, you know, let's go get this money and all that. But, you know, not all money is good money. It's, 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 it's a really tough decision uh, to part ways with somebody as talented as Mark Nelson. So uh, I don't want to put any bitterness out there in the world. I just want to let it be known that it wasn't uh, pleasant or easy. But, yes, we, we parted ways and it was not his uh, decision. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I can totally trust that. I mean, just, um, you know, you, you called me a um, historian earlier, and, I mean, I, I had someone, I mean, it's like, I mean, I don't know everything, but just doing research on certain artists and all that and really getting into the, um, the dynamics of groups and all that, I mean, I, I think a lot of people, like, you know, they really have no idea how tough it is to be in a group, no matter, no matter what the genre is of music. It's like it's tough being in a group, seeing somebody day after day, and you want to keep it going, but it's business first, and unfortunately, you know, it doesn't always end up working out. So how did you always think up with Tony Grant? Um, actually, 
Uh, let's see. Tony Grant uh, was known within the theater circuit as one of the most uh, dynamic uh, tenors. He was uh, an operatic tenor, uh, which is a lot more powerful as far as range and projection in the upper register than Mark Nelson, um, if I had to compare the two. Um, but Mark had that kind of finesse that no one else could copy. So what we liked about Tony was that he had his, his own lane. He wasn't trying to sound like Mark. Uh, he used his strengths to work for him. And when he came in um, to audition, he sang Mark's parts his way, not Mark's way, which is why it was like, oh, man, this could, we could take a new direction with Tony. Um, and he had the experience uh, on stage. He was recommended to us, but I, for the life of me, right, I don't want to mess up the story and, and like, what do you call it, get the order wrong, because I'm not really sure um, who met him first or, you know, what day of the year he showed up and everything. But all I knew was that the minute that I heard him sing it and we saw him, we all knew he was going to um, make take us to the next, I say, take us to the, to the next level. The thing is, we actually recorded... Uh, some songs with Tony Grant. I'm sure you, you may have heard um, the Soul Train Christmas album was the first song we recorded with uh, Tony Grant. He actually sang on that, as well as Fame uh, L.A. We did a TV show with Tony Grant, and he got to, you know, showcase his acting chops as well. So there's just uh, so much, uh, what do you call it, underrated talent. The sad part is that, you know, people want the original group no matter how talented you are. Um, but on the flip side, when we went to Australia, man, we, we did, uh, we opened uh, well, for Human Nature, which is like their number one act. Um, and then Tony was so uh, dynamic that people thought that the, uh, Human Nature was opening for us. You know, like they didn't know that uh, he was a replacement for Mark. They just came and enjoyed the show. It was great. So, um, shout out to Tony Grant. He's now working with Oprah, by the way. Uh, he's he's been with there for well, with uh, the Oprah Network for a while, uh, doing uh, sitcoms and uh, I can't name all the shows because man, I don't I don't really uh, at this point uh, yeah have the names and in front I, of me. But I've yeah, Google Tony, Tony Grant. And, yeah, yeah, I've seen Tony. You know, I'm I'm uh, based in the DC area, so anytime a play comes to DC. Tony Grant is usually, you know, the male lead in a yep. certain play any, anytime when I'm hitting D.C. So I'm a sidetracker really quick because I'm looking at my uh, my music hard drive right now. So two songs really quick that are on the soundtrack, and I'm going to know sing on those songs. The first song is What the Hell Do You Want from the Half Penny soundtrack, and the second yep. song is Nothing Compares on the Steel uh. soundtrack. So were those Tony songs or were those Mark songs? Oh, neither. Okay, what this you have you have identified two of the rare songs that only contain four as yet members. So we had a period before we got Tony Grant. We went on as four, and you know, and we were open to different directions because you know the label was was suggesting these different producers, and we had we you know uh, we were still signed to LaFace. Uh, and then we went unsigned for a while. But this, this, so we were supposed to put a second record out, and on that second record, um, we were hoping that we can go on a tour. 
and we did those two songs and some other stuff that was really great. But I, uh, first one, what the hell do you want from me? Uh, was produced by a really good friend of mine, a talented uh, artist in his own right. Um, do you remember uh, Dre Allen? Andre Allen. He had an album called yeah. The Dre Allen Project. So he's a writer and producer extraordinaire, amongst other things. Um, and he wrote that song. Such a great, uh, great dude. He's still out there uh, doing his thing. But I, uh, he like became some kind of a real estate mogul, <laughs> you know, said movie director. Uh, so we were lucky to uh, to get that song from him, and a lot of people said it didn't sound like as yet. What the hell do you want from me? They're like, why why are you going that way? <laughs> you know, like it sounds like something Drew Hill would do. But you know, the reason why we were called as yet is because our style was as yet undefined. So we didn't want to limit ourselves. What's wrong with I like Drew Hill style and and uh, Jodeci style? Why not do one a song in that vibe? What's wrong with it? And then uh, what was the other song? He uh, said, What the hell do you want from me? And the steel Shaquille O'Neal. That was such a great experience. People, nothing compares. Uh, first of all, Shaq uh, was so cool to hang around. Shaq has always been good to us. Like you know, we we, we uh, did a lot of uh, things in LA, uh, like events where he would be, and you know, we hung out with Magic Johnson because at one point Magic wanted to uh, sign us to his label. So we we traveled a lot in those NBA circles, singing national anthems, and we get the call like, "Hey, Shaq's doing a movie." man, come on, it's Shaq doing a movie. And pe- people clown the movie, but when you look at it now, I think it's actually stood the test of time, man. I, I, I thought it was pretty cute and touching. It's just, you know, when it came out, the public wasn't ready to see Shaq as an actor and they, they couldn't take him seriously. But I thought it was really nice. And the song is, is, is dope. You know, it's a great song. Um, let's see. Uh, is that enough information? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm hoping out, man. So it's all interesting to me. You got stories for... Uh... Stories for days. I haven't even tripped you up yet. Anything I've asked, you've been able to to answer. So let's let's go back to Tony Grant for a quick second. How long was Tony yeah. with the group? And did you all ever record oh, enough man. material for an album with him? You know what? Okay, um, I'm not. I'm just uh, adjusting to quarantine life, so I couldn't tell you how many years Tony was with the group per se. But what I can tell you about the material is that. Yes, I believe there are enough uh, songs floating around with Tony on them that we were a part of that could make an album. Uh, it, because we actually, when we were uh, in the show Fame L.A., we were in series. Um, it only ran for one season, but it had uh, Rosalind Sanchez in it, you know, the, the great Rosalind Sanchez. Um, and it was a Paramount, uh, you know, uh, that basically they hired like uh, – some composers to create music for a made for TV group. And we got to be a group playing a group that was trying to get, you know, make the big time in LA. So we actually recorded a whole album of stuff for the show <laughs> alongside of the other material that we did uh, while we were independent. Like basically Tony was with us from the end of the LaFace era. And when we went independent, uh, he got called to do some plays and he was doing other things on the side. And uh, LaDon uh, came into the picture after him when we were signed to DreamWorks Records. So doing the math to answer your question, um, it was at least two to three years of, you know, consistent time with Tony 
because we he we he came in while we were touring uh, to pick up the Australian leg, like I mentioned. Um, that was probably around '98. Like after the song got the Grammy, we got a lot of overseas. Uh, well, I'm sorry, Grammy nomination. I don't want to sound like I'm lying, but after the Grammy nomination, we got called to go overseas, and that's when we brought Tony in because Mark uh, was absent from the tour. At, you know, he was unable to complete uh, that leg of the tour. Um, so from say '98 to about, I'm sorry, '98. From dang, I, yeah, '98 to about 2002. I could be wrong. Uh, you know, Wikipedia I think says 2001. I'm not sure, but uh, <laughs> what do I know? I, I was only in the group. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's um, sidetrack really quick. Since you know, you give me so much trivia. All right, so another 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 bit of trivia, folks. And she also did a song with uh, Kirk Franklin for the Kingdom Come soundtrack. Do you have any, Do you have any memories about working with Kirk Franklin on? Look, Kirk Franklin was awesome. Every woman. <laughs> Hey, every woman that you would never think of Kirk Franklin uh, writing a romantic song for the Lord, and somehow he managed to accomplish that tight uh, that tightrope walk of something that is uh, sentimental without being too suggestive or sensual, and considering the fact that As Yet's first single was both uh, was a suggestive and uh, by some standards very overt. You know, I was inside of you to be in, uh, I was inside the church. You know what I mean? Like it was actually a great, a great experience because Kirk Franklin showed us how cool that you could be cool and like down to earth and like relatable, uh, and not be like holier than thou. Like he was so like humble and, and infectiously, uh, creative, uh, and people may not know this, but a piece of trivia it is our most covered ukulele song. If if you look up as yet every woman, you will find hundreds and hundreds of people playing the the their version of it on ukulele. Apparently, the chord voicings lend themselves to ukulele. So in Southeast Asia, a lot of people know that song. With, you know, or Polynesia, you know, Hawaii, Philippines, uh, Malaysia, of course. Shout out to Malaysia and uh, Singapore. They they play every woman on ukulele. So. Cool, cool. All right, so I'm going to um, go off track a little bit really quick. So you guys were going to sign with um, DreamWorks at, a, at, at one point, correct? We did sign to DreamWorks. However, uh, after about a year and a half of being signed to DreamWorks, uh, our, and our label mates uh, also went through the same thing. We were label mates with uh, Nelly Furtado, uh, John B., Floetry, uh, Blackstreet, um, Papa Roach. Uh, I know I'm leaving out a lot of people, but make a long story short, uh, yes, we we had a hiatus and we gathered some material and pitched it to DreamWorks of one of the guys in our group, Daryl, who's also a writer-producer, uh, had a relationship with them as a writer, so he brought in the group, uh, shout out to Daryl. And uh, after about a year and a half, we noticed that we still hadn't released a song yet, but uh, Blackstreet had gotten signed after us, and their record came out first. It was called Wizzy Wow. Yeah. We don't think called Wizzy Wow. Yeah, I'm surprised he didn't play. He, he should have played that first uh, on the battle. <laughs> he should have got yeah, that one right we, out of the way. We don't speak on that, uh, we don't speak on that Blackstreet album, unfortunately. Things, things, things that are stood need no explaining. <laughs> Oh man! Shout out to Teddy Riley though. Like it, it wasn't his fault that I mean he they beat us. See that's the thing. They they're the ones who beat us for the Grammys. 
and uh, for best R&B vocal performance group or duo. We were in the same category with Kurt Franklin and God's Property, uh, Take Six, Boys to Men, and Blackstreet. So just to be in the same category with them was great. And we collaborated, obviously, with Kurt Franklin before and with uh, Mervyn Warren from Take Six. And we came up with Boys to Men. So, like, you know, it was just great to be in that category. But the category was Best R&B Vocal Performance, not Most Popular Recording on a Vocoder. So I just kind of, no offense to Teddy, but I felt like the the, uh, the Academy uh, should have considered the, the performance part of the Best R&B group performance. Uh, but, you know, it was disappointing to, to uh, lose to them, but it uh, couldn't happen to a nicer group. You know, Black Street is dope, and I love Teddy. Um, but Wizzy Wow, so basically they, they, uh, the label kind of shot their load with Wizzy Wow, and we never got a chance to come out with our singles and the stuff that we've been working on for a year and a half. And by then they're like, we can't take another risk because if the group that beat you guys for the Grammy uh, didn't uh, come back like we thought, why should we spend money on you? And then the label got bought out by Universal. Uh, as far as I know, the catalog, uh, you know, and all it was, you know, flower trees. Uh, a few artists got snatched up by other labels, um, but at this time, you know, it didn't work out with us. And Daryl uh, parted ways and started another group, and you know, we were back to square one or square zero at that point. After uh, DreamWorks uh, eventually folded as a label. But shout out to Steven Spielberg. Uh, because of DreamWorks, I got to be in Minority Report, the movie. I'm in like an opening scene, I swear to you, for like 0.5 seconds. You can see me for three seconds if you slow it down. It's dope. Uh, because DreamWorks, uh, the film company, being a division of the label, um, I got an inside track on when to show up, and I got to be in the movie. So you know, shout out to uh, Steven Spielberg and SKG, formerly, well, you know, the it's a, a whole other rabbit hole of trivia. I'm not going to go down right now. <laughs> okay. so I don't want to. Um, I don't want to like you know stir up anything. It's just um, when I was doing my research for the house and who made the questions, there's something on Wikipedia that's confusing. It's all get out, and it makes it seem like there was two factions of as uh, one one group, one faction that you were in, and another faction the Daryl Anthony's with a Don Bishop and some other guys. Was that going on? Okay. I'm, I'm going to promise. This, uh, you, you're, you're not stirring up. It's an obvious question that anybody uh, would have if they're paying attention. Now, again, yeah, because the way it's I, working I, on Wikipedia, uh, that's how it seems. It's like there was two turn groups of that yet. Kind well, of like, did, like the Temptations not, in the 70s. Well, yeah, because I, I don't have a hand in uh, Wikipedia as far as the as yet page. I haven't inserted or edited whatever I let the public and whoever put there. But I will say this, right? Um, there was one group and only one as yet that operated as a corporation and a business uh, owning its own trademark with the rights to use the name as yet uh, in the entertainment industry. The other group had no such rights. So you can figure out which one it is. Uh, when you yeah. look at which uh, mem members are still going and which ones aren't, and I will leave it at that. <laughs> cool. Thank you for the clarification. Like I said, you know, uh, you know, anybody can add it on Wikipedia, but like I said, the way it's worded, it just sounds. Yeah, and that was uh, by design, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's unfortunate that um, you know, it, it was it was a source of contention and, and bitterness and anger personally when when I see 
something that I've helped to build from scratch um, and watching somebody else uh, try and t- uh, come in after the fact and, and eat off your plate and not even, you know, wash their hands first. <laughs> I don't, it was just like, wow. Uh, I don't know. I just I think it's crazy when somebody's trying to make more money off you than you, or using to make more money off your name and your likeness and your hard work. Yeah, it it can be a source of uh, bitterness. But I actually wish them all well. I'm like, if you can do something with it, it only helps blow the name as yet up. Like I think we have enough X members from ninety from eighty nine till now. You can start another group and call them the X Men. So anybody <laughs> who wants to keep. The, <laughs> keep the as yet name popular by starting more groups. You know, we're going to franchise it out. Like, you can, you can be the uh, Kentucky State as yet if you want, and, you know, we'll have, like, the Missouri State as yet. So screw it. But only one group has the right to use the name, and that group is still in Vegas touring and performing. So you might want to get their permission before you start your own chapter of as yet. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. All right, so around 2007, yourself, Mark Nelson, Kenny Terry, and Dion reunite, and you guys were supposed to do a second album. What happened with some next? I remember you guys had the single "Share Life" that was a dope song around '08, but it was just um, for whatever reason things didn't go according to plan. Well, okay, I'd like to say that the plan uh, didn't go according to plan. Um, but that would be an insult to the plan. I don't think there was a plan. Um, and I'm just keeping it real because that's all I can do. Again, it's just my my observations. During that time, you know, there were lots of issues that were not necessarily directly related to formulating a plan and following it through. Uh, and when you can't – when when hmm, if a plan is misguided, the destination is – predestined so let me say if he planned to fail you failed to plan so i think yeah. uh, it it wasn't i wasn't uh at that point 2007 uh i was actually in a rock band i i, I left the, the group um as far as like the, the creative aspects of putting together an album i was not involved in that was uh shout out to Dion allen and kenny terry who actually uh wrote the bulk of the shared life album and produced it uh, that single, uh, you know, was written by Dion Allen and uh, produced in my absence. It doesn't mean that it's not a good song, but I had nothing to do with it. So I don't want to take any credit, uh, you know, for that song because I was not involved in the creation, production, or release of that song. So the reason why, um, you know, As Yet 2007 didn't work was because it was a collection of a lot of recordings that we had done over the years, but by the time a plan was formulated to release it, uh, the actual members contained in the recording were no longer functioning uh, actively. So there was no, uh, it wasn't like we were signed to a label and there was a budget to master it or everybody sat down and wrote and said, we're going to come up with a great follow-up to the first album. It was more like, man, we're sitting on all this uh, music. We should better to do something than nothing, which I'm not, you know, mad at that. But, like, uh, for me personally, I wasn't interested. Um, I wasn't interested in being a part of something that um, that didn't reflect my values musically. So, uh, I anyway, I think I've already said too much. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's totally... Um... 
So it's like, I mean, it, you know, it goes back to what we, were, what we were talking about earlier. Just it's the dynamics of being in a group. I mean, you know, you, sometimes you just don't want to be a part of where they're going musically, and you know, it it happens. Okay, so yeah, 2013, the, the group tour. Yes. 2013, the group tours as part of the Broadway musical My Brother Marvin, The Secret Life of Marvin Gaye. Were you part of the group when they were doing the um? That oh tour? yeah, yeah. Now that that shout out to Tony Grant, Tony Grant, uh, who played the lead role, already was booked for this play, and he came up with a brilliant idea to bring in, as yet, uh, to reunite us um, without Mark at. Uh, Although he has worked with Mark, by the way, they were in a group, another version of As Yet. But uh, we'll talk about that another time. Uh, so Tony Grant called us to be a part of this play, My Brother Marvin. He was the lead role. It was Keith Washington also, um, you know, yep. played Marvin during the, you know, the final stages of his life. And it was directed by Clifton Powell, who was like this un- super-duper underrated actor and director, Clifton Powell. Uh, Chauncey, if you saw him, you'd be like, oh, I've seen him in, you know, so many movies. Yeah, thank um, you. Pinky. Wait, he didn't play Pinky and Next too? Friday. Oh, I'm thinking of another movie. Okay. okay. No, yeah. Pinky, Pinky and Next yeah. Friday and then Chauncey and I'm in a society. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Man, I was going to say, uh, he deserves all the credit uh, for, for putting together an amazing story that captured an, un, uh, I'll say a relatively unknown uh, aspect of Marvin Gaye's life coming up was that his father, uh, Marvin Sr., was a cross-dressing minister. He would wear his mother's bra underneath uh, his robes at services because he was abused as a child. And it really affected Marvin growing up um, to the point where he added the E to the end of his name because he didn't want people to think he was gay. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just, it, it's deep. It's a really deep thing that he was murdered by his own father. You know, such a talented dude, you know, and he had to go that way. So this, this play uh, basically covered a lot of the Motown era and they wanted to include uh, the artists to play with the Temptations, you know, the, the Four Tops or whatever, like wh- whoever was touring that day. And what I liked about Clifton was he didn't stick, he, you know, he wouldn't stick to the script in a good way. Like he would develop the script all the way and look at the audience's reaction and rewrite jokes or change songs out or, you know, change the positioning choreography. Like he didn't just say, oh, this is the one way to do this. So when As Yet came in, when we started, it was like, okay, we're the four tops. And then we did like the Temptations and then we did like the Manhattans. And then, you know, uh, we had little acting parts and we switched wardrobe and oh, um, that lifestyle of stage is so demanding that, um, I really had a newfound respect for Tony Grant uh, having to do that for being able to uh, have that kind of stamina because you only get one take when you do that show. and It's not a taping. There is no rewind. Uh, and you got two more shows that night where you got to remember all your lines and your positioning and uh, and hit it like the money notes when all the music drops out and it's just you in a spotlight. Oh, man, those are great times. Great times. Uh, that play should be made into a movie, but it, it would definitely be one of those controversial award-winning type movies. And it was uh, actually the script was based on a book written by Marvin's uh, sister. Shout out to Viola Gay. Yes. So, would you ever consider acting full time? You know, doing like you know what? Uh, I would. I would. I mean, I've, I've taken some. I've taken time to consider uh, acting as a career. Um, I've studied somewhat. Uh, not that that guarantees any level of uh, proficiency. I'm passionate about art and how it relates 
uh, to the world, which uh, some ideas can only be conveyed through drama. However, uh, I do find the lifestyle and the um, uh, the demands of acting to be uh, somewhat, uh, de- you know, deterring. Like, I, I, I'm not a Hollywood-type cat. Like, I lived in L.A. for 20 years, and I loved so many things about it. Um, but if I were to be uh, involved in any sort of uh, acting-related activities, uh, I probably wouldn't be, like, hanging out afterward. I'd just come do my job and make some friends and then go home. Like, you're not going to catch me at every red carpet trying to, uh, you know, do the who's who thing. I, I think I would just you know, pick a few projects in, in a perfect world, pick, pick a few projects that really speak to me. I was actually in a play called Glory, Grace, and Justice, which is really awesome, before the Marvin Gaye play, and I got to be the lead role, uh, well, the lead male role, because Glory, Grace, and Justice were three sisters uh, who uh, were competing for the attentions of one man, lucky me. Um, but it was like a romantic comedy. It was really great. So I'm sure it's floating around there somewhere. Was it that off-Broadway Philly play, or did you do that out in L.A.? No, it was actually in L.A. at the L.A. Wilshire, the Wilshire Ebell Theater in Los Angeles, um, which, you know, it's a couple thousand seats. Like, we, we, we got some radio promo. And then, but, you know, I, I was also, like, uh, in the, uh, the Days of Our Lives. They used, uh, I got to play Puerto Rican Prisoner Number 2. Where I had a couple of lines. It's at, at somewhere you can find it in the archive. Um, you know, like, I've done some some acting and I would consider it full time under the right circumstances, which are so rare that one can only hope. <laughs> so I'll keep my fingers crossed. And if you know anybody who's casting, uh, I'll gladly audition. Oh yeah. That's, that's, that's a totally different, um, different mindset just to, you know, go off track again. That's a totally different, um, way of acting is the, um, is the stage and you know a lot of times when i am um, you know on social media you'll see these little um comparisons about like you know who's the better actor and all that you know one of the biggest ones is always going to be denzel and will smith and you know for yeah. me you know just growing up and, and, and being like you know uh, somebody that actually goes to plays and all that and you know went to film school for a little bit and studied something like like it's not a shot at will but the stuff that denzel has done on, the stuff that denzel has done on stage is another totally different level than what Will has done. Because being on that stage is just like, you know, you're saying, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's one take. You can't afford to have, you know, take after take after take. That's why, like, you know, Broadway acting and theater acting is totally different from the stuff you see on the TV and in the on um, TV and movies. But, you know, just a little, to, to steal your word, quick little tangent. So I want to move into the second part of the interview, but um, I'm going to wrap up this first part. So currently, are you still with As Yet, or are you just doing your own thing now? Uh, currently, I'm not with As Yet. Uh, I haven't been an official member uh, since uh, well, since uh, about six years ago. I don't know the exact date, but um, basically, um, I had I actually had started a family. I got married, and I moved to Malaysia. I was overseas for six years, and it obviously couldn't be in two places at once. And, you know, the group wasn't uh, paying anybody's bills per se. Like, it was more of a thing where we would get together for spot shows here and there, but it wasn't like we were actively uh, working on a new project. Um, 
at the time. So I, I felt like, you know what, if we, if we never do anything else together with the original members, I am satisfied that we made an impact. And I'm so uh, thankful. I cherish the days we had together, but uh, I'm not necessarily uh, – well, you asked if I'm doing my own thing. I'm actually in another group, <laughs> believe it or not. I thought I was done with groups, um, but I met these guys in Philly um, who were already a group of four members, and, you know, the, the called Viva Mas. And these guys are so dope. Like, they, they still sing the kind of harmonies that we grew up doing, the, you know, back in the day, and it kind of rekindled my love for that style of music, even though it may not be uh, what every, all the other, you know, kids are doing these days. Uh, there's still a market, and people always say, uh, every time I'm online, somebody says, hey, y'all, I'm going to the 90s. You want me to bring you back something? You know, what should I bring back? I'm going to the 90s. So I think the answer to that question is, uh, you know, to bring back the 90s. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but uh, I still, I'm, 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 I'm a hopeless. I'm, I'm right there with you. <laughs> I'm, I'm right a hopeless, you. hopeless romantic, man. I'm a hopeless romantic when it comes to uh, – good music. I feel like there's still room for one more good song in the world, and I want to do something that's going to impact people uh, in the future, not not just, like, self-glorification or to be popular or famous or, you know, make history. It's just more about uh, that process of creating and uh, you doing what you love to do and hope that that love is shared with others and uplifts them, you know, leave the world a little better than you found it. Oh, no doubt. All right, so That's I got I got to ask you about the um. So you're still so you're still doing music, but I got to ask you about the slap box. Oh, brother, how did you come up with the concept for that? Oh man, wow! Do you ever see those commercials on TV where they're like, uh, "If you have an invention, uh, call this number and we'll help you market it and take it to patent and blah 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 blah." Right. So when I was a kid, I used to sit in high school. You know how the people do the beat box battles or the lunchroom table, you know, you make beats on the lunchroom table and people will freestyle over it and be in a cipher. And I used to love that sound like uh, when you got a, like a nice hollow kind of table or you put your ear to the table and you hit it and you hear all that bass. And I was like, man, if there's just like a way to make like a cool little portable, you know, drum that you could basically not, you don't have to take lessons to know how to play it. You can basically raw hand it, uh, and uh, carry the rhythm so you won't have to bring, like, a drum set to every show. You know what I'm saying? Something portable that really knocks. And it started as a drawing that I made in a little book, and then I took it to one of those patent people on TV, which is not the best idea. I wouldn't recommend it. I mean, there are better ways to go about it, but it was still part of the process. Uh, and I, I basically took the drawing around, and then I went to the, the NAM convention uh, with a prototype, and I performed at the NAM convention, uh, and some uh, manufacturer saw my performance or heard about it or something, and, and next thing you know, I'm, I'm negotiating a deal uh, to have my drawing turned into a real-life drum, which was, like, such an uh, exciting thing, man. And uh, there was, like, all these different uh, editions of it made. This is about, uh, I want to say at least, this is before as yet that I had the drawings. But by the time it got made I, and I had the money to get it uh, cracking or at least, you know, take it to the next level was uh, probably, wow, 97, 96, 97. So we're coming up on, what, 20, you know, 20, 23 years, and these drums are still available. St- you can call, you can go on Slapbox. I'm sorry, it's Slap Drum is the company that makes it. 
So if you go to slapdrum.com uh, and you look at the slap box, that is my uh, original design with them, the collaboration that was based on a meeting, some drawings, and a lot of hard work uh, from the uh, team over there at Slapdrum. So uh, when your power goes out, you still got a beatbox. It's really nice, man. Like uh, I, I would play it over the phone, but it wouldn't do it justice because you know it's like a speakerphone ain't gonna have the bass to it. But it's nice. You can put it on a keyboard stand. You can sit on it and play it like a cajon. You can sit it in your lap. You you can actually uh, put a quarter inch jack and uh, put some pickups on it. And mic, you know, I've, I've recorded it uh, on. There's an album uh, that I did with Maya Angelou, and there's uh, a song on there called "For the Old Ones," where I mixed uh, the box drums in with, uh, you know. I sample MIDI drums and it sounds really hot. It's like, you know, if if I had the time, when when I have the time, I won't say if, but I have yet to find the time uh, to take a, a full time interest in marketing this box as the next thing because I want to start getting it out to the producers and letting them play with it and get samples and beats and build a whole library around it, like for today's times. So that, that's you know something I'll do when I get a, a minute uh, free time if I'm fortunate enough to live long enough. Uh, either way, I'll just pass the patent on to my, my kids and let them run with it and see what they want to do. <laughs> what, what's so the one thing you would say is missing from modern R&B? Oh, man. If I, could I just pick, pick one thing? Um, just one if thing. I had to pick one thing, I think sensitivity, uh, subtlety. Okay, there we go. Subtlety is missing. Everybody's telling you what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. <laughs> And it's so like, the, and I know I'm generalizing because there's such great R&B out there that I would not change. You know what I mean? There's actually some really great music today that I would not change for a minute. However, if what I notice is missing from a lot of today's so-called R&B is that, that sensual sort of uh, seductive, now it's all like vulgar, at least maybe I'm just conservative because I'm older now. I'm starting to sound like my grandparents or something, but I just... I don't want everything to be so graphic. <laughs> and people used to say that last night was graphic, but it was the way that it was delivered that, like, they had kids singing along with it, and they didn't know. <laughs> you know, but last, last, last night was, um, was tasteful. And, you know, I'm right there with you. You know, I mean, I'm, I'll be 39 in two weeks. But, you know, when I hit about, I'd say, like, 33 or 34, yeah. my, ears, my ears started to change a little bit. And my soul started to yeah. change, you know, being be, being a husband and being a parent. And I'm like, right. you know, I'm older now, so I know that you can sing about sensuality and love and getting it in, you know, with with your lady. You don't have to necessarily go into what I call the booty like groceries. Yeah, exactly. I want to eat the booty like groceries in the middle of my soul. Oh, come on, man, really? Yeah, and uh, you know, I call it the. Um, it's funny though. I call it R. Kelly territory because it gets to a point oh, to man. where it becomes borderline corny, and it's like if I know yeah. you're an artist and I know that you're talented, and I'm and you know I've seen what you can do, it's no reason for you to be, you know for you to come for you, for you to come off as corny and vulgar when your fans are you know your primary fans are the same age as you, so you ne- you don't have to necessarily appeal to that younger demographic to sell records or move units. Because they have their own land and they have their own artists. I mean, I get it. You want to, you know, be mainstream as possible. But once again, you know, it gets to a point to when if you're a 50-year-old man and you're singing and you're wearing skinny jeans and using auto-tune or 
whatever. Like, it's no need for all that. Yeah. Like, you don't need to be doing all that. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a space for everybody, but, you know, some things take up more space than I would like. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, next. You know, if you, you, know, if you don't like it, just change the channel. Uh, but I do actually, I actually listen for the beat. I listen to the rhythm or the production or the effects. Uh, you know, I mean, automation or just, I don't know. I try to find something nice uh, to like about music just to see what it is that's making people flock to stuff that I don't like. And it's actually a good, uh, a good chance that if I don't like the song, it's going to be a hit. So I'm like the, the groundhog on Groundhog Day. If you see my shadow, if I don't like it, it's probably going to blow up. <laughs> so in 2020, who are some artists that you're listening to currently that are a bit more modern that you actually do rock with? All right. You know what? Uh, I'm, uh, I, I like uh, – you might not be hip to uh, – you probably would because you're a historian, but you know uh, P.J. Morton? Yep. P.J. Morton. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if yeah, I had P.J. to pick, a bad boy. Uh, yeah, I just – because he, he gives me them Stevie vibes but, like, new. You know, and I like JoJo the singer, and uh, like if I was like singer singers, I like listening to, like I still, Karen Clark. Uh, you know, like I still listen. To, when you say Karen because they're still living. You know, like um, when the, uh, her daughter is like doing it, doing it, Kiki. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I, look, speaking of Kiki, uh, Kiara Sherrod. Uh, I listen to. Um, I mean, Jacob Collier. I don't know if you hit to that dude. He's uh, uh, this, this really talented uh, dude from the UK that signed to uh, Quincy Jones' label. Jacob Collier, Liana Havas, who's another like this jazzy bluesy sort of. Uh, I like you know. Uh, I'm more of like a song person. Um, have you heard of this band called Nowhere? Oh my God, this is crazy. Like outside of R&B, R&B, because today's R&B. Like I like Tank. He's a good writer. You know what I'm saying? I like Tank. Uh, he's more current, I guess you can say. But like, and I don't want to drop. Uh, I don't want to forget that there are artists who've been around, but they reinvent themselves and put out new stuff. And you're like, Oh man, but yeah, they're not necessarily new, but I still rock with them, you know? Oh, yeah. um, and I also listen to, I mean, like Snoop Dogg, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, not that, that would be a shocker. Cause you know, we used to smoke out with uh, Goody Mob and Outkast and all them back in the day. <laughs> but like a lot of the hip hop stuff, like, I don't, you know, I don't want nobody showing up at my door wanting to kick my ass. So, uh, I will say this though. As far as new music, most of the stuff that I like uh, is so obscure or it's only online. Like, you know, Mono Neon? There's this cat named Mono Neon. He's a bass player, right? And he'll listen to, uh, like, he'll, he'll play bass to memes. Like, there'll be a quote from the president, and he'll put a harmony to it and make a whole song out of it, like, in real time. It's so sick. Like, uh, and there's a cat named uh, Kevin Ross, right? Kevin Ross is yeah, so boy. dope. Yeah, yeah. I like him, you know, just, I don't know, I, I, I could go on. Uh, and then after we, we're finished, I'm going to be like, man, I left out so many good artists that, I, like, okay, I still, uh, forever rocks with Layla Hathaway. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. And she's still, she's and still he, coming out with stuff. She's doing joint with, yeah. she did a joint with Red like Man. You. you know, like, <laughs> I, just, I just like her. I mean, I, man, she's one of my idol idols. Like, and I actually, you know, I met her back in the day, but she probably forgot. Shout out to Layla. You know, I'm a Layla-holic all the way. Um, I'm trying to think, like, who, who, I, who I listened to uh, today, you know, was uh, Viva Mas and these dumb boys. Uh, I, I shout out to Viva Mas, the acapella singing group coming out of Philly, five Puerto Rican guys. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm actually arranging in that group, so I put together some stuff for them. Uh, I, okay, Nina Simone, 
uh, God rest his soul, uh, just came out with a new album. I know it's probably way off the beaten path, but if you, it's dope. <laughs> they remastered her stuff. Yeah, I'm, maybe I'm just old. Uh, but I can't get, I can't get with, um, I can't, I'm, I'm not a fan of most uh, trap music. Like, uh, if you want to call it that, like, some of it is. Mm. Nah, it's so, not for us. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like, not for I, us. I get it. Yeah, I'm 45. I'm like, that's it. I'm, I'm stuck on old 45s, literally, with the adapter, the little plastic adapter. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, I um, 45 records. And <laughs> I had to kind of get out of that and just say, like, you know, it's just not for me. And, you know, I, I, yeah. I used to be overly judgmental and overly, like, it's trash. And, I mean, I'll still come through the trash thing out there, but... When I interviewed um, Eric Roberson, he was actually my first interview when I started doing this interview. Oh, saying, man. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Real cool guy. He was just kind of Eric, and Eric kind of broke it down for me from a musical, like, standpoint. He was basically saying how, man, think about how, like, when we were kids, how hip-hop back then, you know, it wasn't for our parents. And the stuff that we got yeah. music is, is what we got. Yeah. And he was like, nowadays, like, you know, you know, trap R&B or trap hip-hop, whatever you want to call it like you know you have kids that are at 14 yeah. 15 who, who may who may be suffering from depression or whatever that stuff's helping them out and i again it's like you know i what i what i, I find myself saying now you know more so since the covid is that it's not for me so i'm going to say it's like i try not to pass judgment and say that it's not for me like you know right. I'm, I'm not in that um <laughs> that demographic Right, it's like if I don't like eggs, I, I, I don't like eggs, but I ain't mad at you for liking eggs. I just, eggs just yeah. don't, they turn my stomach, I can't eat eggs, but ain't nothing wrong with them. I just can't eat them. <laughs> right, so you said that you're, it's you good said that you're um, writing and composing now, so what yes. what advice do you have for any young, for any young, any young aspiring, aspiring artist? Do you recommend learning the behind the scenes side of it first or getting out there trying to get a deal first? Well, I'll say there's no one right way, but the last thing you want to do is try and get a deal. No matter what else you do first, the last thing you should be aiming for is a record deal. And no offense to the labels, like if you're one of the fortunate few uh, who does have an opportunity, by all means, I'm not telling you not to sign the deal because I don't have your contract in front of me, and I would never tell somebody to turn down an opportunity. However, if I was giving advice to the younger me, uh, I would – want to make sure that I'm happy every step of the way in that journey, which means that you have to really love making music for the sake of making it, like as opposed to trying to impress somebody. You pay attention to the market and do all these things, but you have to decide what success means to you. Like some people, they say, I won't be happy until I got my Lamborghini or until I get a Grammy or whatever. And for me, as, I, as I've progressed through the creative process, I've realized that um, my idea of success um, comes closer to home. It's more of uh, a thing of, do I feel good about what I'm doing? Does this uh, uplift, this adding to the situation of life? Am, am I part of the problem or part of the solution? I want to be, uh, you know, uh, an asset to whatever I am associated with creatively or else not do it at all. And if it doesn't, you know, maybe some songs sound better because I'm not on it. So I, you got to choose your battles because you can't, uh, you know, it's like you get, when you're a kid, you, you see this whole big smorgasbord of opportunities on your plate, um, but you can't finish them all. So just 
follow your your happiness, uh, follow your gut, uh, study yourself as a person first, because if you are truly one of those people who is a writer, uh, then you're sensitive to the world around you and to what's going on in your inner life, and you're trying to connect with that and share it with people. Uh, and a lot of times we're tortured souls as creative people. We really, uh, I can't speak for everybody, but most of the greatest artists, as you definitely know, uh, don't end well. Like a lot of the great artists are tragic uh, stories. So uh, try to keep that in mind uh, when you're out there uh, taking these artists for granted and not wanting to pay people, uh, ripping them off. You realize these are human beings with lives that are trying to, you know, do their thing. So like you said, you, you said something really good uh, about not judging. It's so easy to say, oh, man, if I was that person, like MC Hammer, stupid, man, he blew all his money. Uh, but he was trusting people and, and thought he was doing the right thing, you know, or somebody gets strung out on drugs. It's because, like, you know, maybe the, a lot of times it's because they got in an accident and they were on the painkillers uh, because the, the, the doctor prescribed it. Next thing you know, they can't get off that stuff. And, you know, we, we tend to point and laugh and watch people fall and not realize that, uh, you know, it's a rough Life. Congratulations. If you love music, you have chosen one of the roughest paths uh, to happiness. But I wouldn't change it for the world because that is, among other things, who I am. If you are what you do or it leaves clues behind, um, then music will always be a part of my story. And that, you know, you got to really want to do it, man, or don't do it at all. If you can see yourself doing anything else, do that. So speaking on artists, I'm a big fan of musical biopics. Is there one particular artist story you would love to see told on the big screen? Hmm. Okay. Um, I say this because I probably, maybe I missed one. I mean, I've seen, you see on the big screen, like reenact the whole, oh, Donnie Hathaway, easily. I yeah. mean, I've seen like the, the documentary style, you know, montages, but I'm talking about somebody actually who's got, uh, the chops and the look, or or just, you know, you know it when you see it, like how Ray Charles did, um, I mean, how, dang, look, you know they're so good when you actually think Jamie Foxx is Ray Charles, right? Yeah. Like one of those type things, or like when Will Smith did Ali, where like they embodied the character, I would love to see somebody do a Donny Hathaway type movie, or um, Marvin Gaye, the movie, uh, the play, I would love to see that uh, in, turn into a, the, the My Brother Marvin. <laughs> I'd love to see that turned into a biopic. A biopic. I would be in it. I'd play Smokey Robinson. You know what I'm saying? I'd get to put some blue co- uh, hazel contacts in. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, the, jo- <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. I just, I just went off on a tangent. Got oh, all excited. Yeah. And Donnie <laughs> has the, um, yeah, and you're not the first person that um that I've interviewed that brings up. Donnie, that that was Eric Roberson's uh, choice. Also, was Donnie Hathaway because I mean Donnie has an amazing. I mean, you know, it's tragic, but it's just. Didn't uh, he do people make the world go around? At, yeah, didn't he do that over? He made uh, Eric Roberson. Yeah, I think he did over yeah. one of Donnie's songs. That was like my introduction to him. I heard him singing it somewhere. Uh, pretty sure it was people make the world go round. Could be wrong. Yeah, but Donnie has an um, amazing story, and um, you know, going to um. You know, going going to film school so many years ago, and and being a music you know fanatic. Also, um, you know, a couple of days ago they announced they were going to do Janet Jackson's biopic supposedly, and you know mm. I saw people online kind of saying how like you know Janet doesn't really need one. I'm like, like yo, do you not know Janet? Just Janet has a huge, huge <laughs> I let Janet speak for Janet. Um, if she says she needs one, give it to her. 
<laughs> yeah, well, if it's unauthorized, well, well, I'll still watch it. <laughs> my I argument with Janet watch is um, anything about Janet. Yeah, my 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 argument for Janet's story is um, a lot of people forget that prior to Control, you know, Janet's first two albums kind of flopped. They really didn't do anything, and she was still stuck in you know her her older brother's shadow. So, ideally, I would focus on Janet's story from. Being an actress on, you know, Good Times. Good Times, yeah. Going up to control, yeah. because that in itself is an underdog. That that story right there, her becoming the icon she is right now and breaking away from Joe and her brother's shadows and making Janet Jackson its own thing is a classic underdog story, like in itself. So, yeah, she has, she, she has yeah. enough backstory for a two-hour movie on the big screen. You just have to, you know, not think of Janet as an icon. Think about... Janet before she was the icon and focus on that portion of her life prior to becoming, you know, Miss Jackson, if you're nasty, you know, she was somebody before that because a lot of folks don't, you know, forget that she didn't want to, she didn't want to be a singer. She wanted to be an actress. Right. She kind of just fell, right. fell into singing. All right. Yep. So let's come, well, let's I would, love, I would love to see that, but it would be really hard to cast the rest of the Jackson too. You know how hard that casting call would be? Cause you can't have a Janet uh, movie without at least some, you know, cameos by Michael. I mean, come on. <laughs> like, if you want to cover those I would times. Use, um, I would use unknowns and, uh, use, you know, do a cast yeah. call, use unknowns, and just focus on, because I, I kind of, like, when I saw it, you know, the script kind of played on my head, you know, I would start it around 78, 77, and I would mm-hmm. end it in 89 at the opening night of her control, I mean, uh, the, the, the Rhythm Nation tour. So that, that's, oh, that, yeah. that's like a nice little, a nice little twelve-year time period where you know she, you focus on the marriage to James DeBarge, you focus on her becoming her own person, you focus on her on her hooking up with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. It's enough in there for an underdog story and not really focusing on what was going on when she became more secretive. So I mean that's how I would do it. Okay, okay, right, so, I, I would watch that. Uh, you know, yeah. So this next question on, uh, might throw you a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. That's actually pretty cool. I could watch that. All right, so it's nineteen eighty four and you get a phone call from Michael Jackson's camp and they want you to see background on the victory tour. Two minutes later, someone from the Prince camp knocks on your door and they wanted to sing background on the Purple Rain tour. Who would you pick and why? Hmm. Well, I think more importantly, uh I would have to decide how to pick because there's so many upsides to both of those artists, obviously. You know, like, I don't have a clear-cut winner because it depends on which Michael Jackson and which Prince. Like, you, you mentioned the songs, and you mentioned uh, the, the, the tour, right? But what I mean is, do you want me to decide based on the music or based on what my attorney tells me after they read the contract, based on what's required of me. Because when you're backing up Michael, right, uh, you, you better have your, your A game with the dancing too. Like you can't just – it's not like you're just going to stand up there and vibe. You know what I'm saying? It's going to be choreography. So relative to the amount of work that you have to do, I'm sure the pay would be, you know, people were lining up to, to perform Michael Jackson, right? But maybe I'd have to consider whether I'm even capable. If they call me, I'm flattered. Right? So I would say yes. But the thing is, I think, honestly, 
if Michael called me first, I would have already said yes before Prince called. So I'd have to tell Prince I just told Michael Jackson yes, and then Prince would be like, bye. Nah. Or <laughs> I don't know if he'd hang up on me or he would try to outbid Michael Jackson. You know what I'm saying? Like I'd have, I have to play that out of my mind for a minute and think about it because I already said yes to Michael Jackson. But I'm sure he won't be upset if I told him, look, I, an emergency came up, and then he finds out I went uh, with Prince instead of Michael. Guess what? I'm blackballed for life. So fi- Michael Jackson, final answer. <laughs> Yeah, it's, 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 it's a tough one because it's, it's 84, and, you know, Prince has Purple Rain, which is just a massive success. And then you have Michael, fresh off a of thriller, but he's doing the victory tour. So it's like, yeah, tough question. All right, so I'm going to close the question out with another uh, – I'm going to close the interview with another curveball question. Once the COVID is over, you're out for a jog in Philly, and you happen to run into Barack and Michelle Obama – they recognize you from your Azjet days, and they ask you to take them to the best cheesesteak spot in Philly, so you guys can chop it up. Where would you take them? Oh, oh, all right. Now, that is a very hot topic right there, because I can take them where I think a great cheesesteak is, right? But certain people, especially someone some folks as well-traveled as Barack and Michelle, they've probably developed a preference. Some people like their bread crispy or they like, you know, a certain type of meat or cheese. Like, I'm not going to assume they don't know anything. You know what I mean? But uh, there's a place called Joe's that I've been raving about, right? And it's like, you know, in a neck of the woods that you would not be able to find. Uh, You know, if if Barack and Michelle – walked in there, they would stick out like sore thumbs because it's like a, a old, the building is like one of the old 50s-style cafes where they've been around since the 40s. And they, this place called Joe's. Um, and, I, you know, I would take them there because that's my favorite cheesesteak. But if they're like, oh, you know what, this is a little too sloppy jalopy for me, or, or I don't like finely cut prime rib. I want some, you know, street meat. Like, there's a different style of cheesesteak that you can get in my neighborhood than the ones that I would take the Obamas to. You know, maybe I would actually call some friends. It depends because i got to consider their safety, man. I can't have them coming into the hood. I'm sure they would survive, you know what I'm saying? But I just imagine them wearing, like, three, you know, I, I picture Michelle in a red dress with, you know, with her arms out and Barack in a three-piece suit, you know what I'm saying? I can't take them up to Joe's like that. But shoot, we'll never get out of there. <laughs> the whole staff will want to take pictures with them. So I'm like, can y'all wait in, in the, the car and uh, – you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go and get the food for y'all. Y'all can tell me how it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I couldn't take him to sit down and eat. All right, so just um, I'm 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 gonna ask him to the I'm gonna ask him to the to the cheesesteak thing. I went to Philly in 2018. I think it was 2018. I went out there to see Neo and um, concert. My, my wife's a huge Neo fan, so I he was performing at um Dell Music Center. So I got my wife. The tickets went down there, set front row. That's another story, though, because that was, that, was, that was an experience with uh, dealing with Philly oh, cats. Yeah. But, yeah, that, you know, yeah. on Monday, you know, we, 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 were driving back to, we were driving back to Virginia and, you know, had to get a cheesesteak. So I, um, you know, asked around, and I, you know, what's the best spot to go to? And, like, everybody I asked, they said, whatever you do, don't go to Geno's. Like that's for, that's for the tourists. Yeah, you know what? Okay, Geno's, uh, it's like it's a photo op, but it's not necessarily my style. A lot of people say it's just for the tourists because of the location and the whole vibe. 
but you know I don't want to take any. Uh, I, I'm not trying to take anything away from them. But there are far better cheesesteaks than Geno's. Like I said, you can go to. Okay, I like Jim's right on South Street. It used to be my ultimate favorite. I'm, I'm still in my top handful, right? And I'm still open to be impressed because there's always competition out there. But you know, there's a spot Joe's on Torresdale. Uh, they have, I think, the same owner. They have a couple locations, like over in Broad and Gerard. Uh, there's one over here near K and A. Or, uh, but anyway, they're like Tony Luke's people like. Uh, it's all right, you know. It just depends on what you like. Like, do you want the emphasis on the bread, the sauce, the meat, the cheese, uh, how the cut is? Um, some places have, might have fresher vegetables if, you, if that's your thing. You know, have little diced onions. Or some people use canned mushrooms, on, and you're like, oh, no, I need fresh mushrooms on my cheesesteak and none at all. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't recommend Geno's for me personally. I'm like, is it? Yeah. Well, the, um, it the, the local told us, they said, avoid Geno's, avoid pets. So we ended up going to um, we ended up going to Joe's and on, on, on South Street. Yeah, I oh, think yeah, it was Jim's. That's, that's the joint. It's Jim's. The Jim's what, was right there on Fifth. That's that's Jim's. one of the top ones. Jim's. Yeah, yeah, they got wherever, that, wherever uh, it was, the they have the um, they, they they cook it in front of you, and I think they they do the meat like in a broth, and they bring yeah. it out to you. And upstairs, they have photos of Kevin yep. Hart, Ice Cube, all the celebrities. So yeah, it was. Yeah, that's where Dr. I ended up going. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that's that's the joint. That's the joint right there. Yeah, it was the joint. Yeah, man, that's, that's, yeah, even, like, um, that's I'll never turn down a gypsy stick. <laughs> yeah, even wifey, um, you know, wifey was a bit, um, like, well, you know, we are in Philly, so she's like, oh my god, let's the guys ahead. I'm like, yeah, you know, we're in a, we're in Philly, and to my listeners out there, I'm telling you guys, no matter what people tell you and try to argue you down, the best cheese steaks are in Philly. So you can try to go sure. somewhere and say that, um. You know, New York, Chicago, D.C., wherever. Yeah, it's something in the water in Philly because that's why it's called a Philly cheesesteak. They know what they're doing. Oh yeah, with the steaks. That's for sure. It's, just, it's like when you go to Baltimore, you get some crabs. You know what I'm saying? It's just certain things are regionally uh, spectacular. So, I'm talking about. All right. So before we close out, so is there anything you want to add? And where can fans find you on social media? All right, you can find me on Instagram at Sean Kurt Rivera, which is S H A W N K U R T R I V E R A, or you can look me up on Facebook, Sean Rivera. Uh, keep an eye out for a new single called Human Family by Dr. Maya Angelo. It's called Human Family 2020. It's a poem written by Dr. Angelo that I was privileged enough to set to music. It should be out by the time this thing airs. Actually, by the 28th of May is when we launch uh, the new website with Cage Bird Songs. Also, shout out to Viva Moss, which uh, we're working on our next record. If you like that old school R&B, acapella, five-part harmony, straight from Philly by Philly natives, then that's, we're, that's the sound for you, Viva Moss. You know, it's just really great. Um, I'm, I know that there are so many people who were involved in making this uh this is the flagship podcast. This is the first one. It only gets better from here, man. So I apologize in advance. Uh, thank you for having me, and I really appreciate all the love you've shown me, Mr. Derek Dunn. Oh, thank you. And uh, I, I wish everyone the best uh, during this time, and stay safe, uh, and, you know, stay safe. All right, Don't folks, forget to stay safe. Was, uh... And wash your hands. Wash your hands. <laughs> <laughs> all right, folks, that was Tom uh, Rivera from Azette. I learned some things from this gentleman. I hope you learned some stuff as well. Until the next time, 
As always, to quote my man Maurice Wright, may you be ever wonderful. Stay blessed, stay inspired, and keep chasing the dream. Done out. Yo, what's up? This is Damien Crazy Lakes all from the R&B Group Guy. And remember, you're in the mix with Review and Done with my man, Derek. Check him out.